0: Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're going to be discussing Iris Murdoch and the moving image. Now you might think that we are going to be exclusively discussing film and television in relation to Iris. And in some regards you would be right, we are going to be covering those elements. We'll of course be talking about um, some of the TV versions of her books, we'll be mentioning um, the film of a severed head, perhaps even um, the film of her life. But particularly we're going to be focusing on how Murdoch uses imagery, how she uses... um, concerns with um, the articulation of various images within her novels to promote a certain form of vision. So we'll be thinking in the round really about all sorts of ideas concerning um, the visual arts and the moving image. Joining me today we've got uh, three experts in the field, um, one of which has been on before um, and two of which are um, brand new to the Murdoch podcast. I'm delighted to welcome them. We've got... um, Dr Lucy Bolton from uh, Queen Mary University of London. Hello, Lucy.
1: Hello there, Miles. Hi,
0: everyone. Hi. Um, Lucy's on the editorial board of the Iris Murdoch Review and she's recently uh, published a book on contemporary cinema and the philosophy of Iris Murdoch and is currently working on Iris Murdoch as a film phenomenologist. Lucy, I believe that your book on contemporary cinema and Iris is coming out in paperback soon. Yes, that's good news. It is.
1: Yes, I'm not sure how long it's going to be, but I have actually signed the, the paperback contract, so it shouldn't be too long.
0: Excellent. We'll talk about that more a little bit more later on, I'm sure. And that's coming. That's um, with um, Edinburgh University Press.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah. Also today, we've got uh, Rebecca Moden. Uh, Rebecca's a researcher at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre at Chichester, and she's currently working on um, the um, relationship between Iris Murdoch and the artist Harry Weinberger. Hello, Rebecca. Hello
2: there.
0: Hi. And she's also guest editor of this year's RS Murdoch Review, um, along with um, Lucy Alton, another um, researcher at the, uh, the University of Chichester. And um, we welcome back um, our regular contributor, um, Professor Anne Rowe. Hello, Anne.
3: Hello, Miles.
0: Um, Anne's really important um, to this podcast um, because she really began um, this, um, the research into uh, Murdoch and the and the. Uh, and the moving image with her work, Iris Murdoch and the Visual Arts, um, which came out a number of years ago. Um, But also, of course, Anne is well known for uh, Living on Paper, um, Iris Murdoch, Literary Life, and so much else. So Anne, perhaps we'll start with you. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you came into uh, thinking about Iris Murdoch in in this sense, um, and a bit about um, your own work and and your work on the visual arts?
3: Right, well, it all began actually in 1978. Um, I was at home. with two small children um, and read a lot. And my husband came home with the obligatory Booker Prize in 1978. And I was absolutely flummoxed by this book. I loved it, but I didn't understand it. Um, I didn't know much about unreliable narrators in those days, but as soon as I finished it, went back and started to read it again. And one thing I did know a bit about was the Titian painting that uh, crops up when Charles Araby visits the Wallace Collection Um, A chance conversation with another mum at the school gates said I could do a degree at Kingston University. And by an extraordinary coincidence, when I did enrol to do the degree there, I was taught by one Peter J. Conrady, of course, who was um, then uh, the author of uh, a very, very well-known book on Iris Murdoch. So after that, these two interests in the visual arts and in literature sort of coincided and I did an MA in literature and the visual arts at Reading University by now very friendly with with Peter he suggested that there was a gap in Murdoch scholarship he said these books are saturated with references to the visual arts but nobody's really written a major work on it so it was that extraordinary coincidence really that led to me writing my PhD uh, on Iris Murdoch during which time I was invited to teach a few seminars at Kingston University one one of The tutors went off sick and left 25 years later. So just before I say something about my research, which led my PhD, which led to the publication of the visual arts um, and the novels of Iris Murdoch, I think if you, you want to really understand how they are functioning in the novels, you've really got to understand how important art and painting was to Murdoch herself and the passion that she had for painting and the visual arts. Um, she must have studied, I think, art history at Badminton School because we've got a letter in the archives written in July 1938 from Badminton School. But she's obviously just about going up to Oxford. She's just read a novel about Van Gogh, and this is what she writes to her school friend um, about this novel. I'm now consumed with the desire to paint all day and all night and I'm making a start on this this morning. If I were about six times as good as I am, I'd chuck up Oxford and go to art school. I'd said sell every faculty I have to paint just one good picture. I think that desire to be um, a painter and that love of painting and interest in the lives of painters and the work of painters stayed with her for the rest of our life. Um, I think she says at one point, Peter says in the biography that she wanted to become an art historian while she was mm. at Oxford. Yeah. Um, and for the rest of her life, and Rebecca will be talking more about this, um, she surrounded herself with painters as friends. Harry Weinberger, of course, um, Barbara Dorff, another one. And, of course, she taught philosophy after she left teaching at Oxford in 1963. She taught philosophy to art students at the Royal College of Art. She made a great friend there in one of her students, David Morgan, who was a painter uh, and that she she was friends with him for the rest of her life. So I think with all, all these painters who were f- her friends, she talked about the life and work of painters. She talked about art theory. She talked about movements in arts. So painting was never very far from her thinking when she was actually writing the novels. And of course, she said the only person she knew who ever influenced her was Henry James. So that's the context, I think, to the way that the visual arts infiltrates in some way, I would say, every 26 novels. And anything I can say about this today, I think, is only scratching the surface. I still don't think that um, there's enough work yet done, and Rebecca will be taking this forward, I know, uh, on the influence of painting in, in the novels. So I'll just finish by illustrating just a couple of ways that this vast knowledge about art infiltrates the novels. The first thing, I think, is to appreciate that when you're reading an Iris Murdoch novel, although she's been recorded many times as being a realist writer she's not uh, a realist writer or at least not just a realist writer she creates a whole surface of the novel in the way that a painter would create the surface of a canvas she wants people to be moved emotionally by the books is obviously a philosophical writer she's an intellectual writer but she says if no emotion is present if no feeling is present no art is present and it's this constructing the surface of the novel as if she were painting a picture rather than writing a book. I think it's hugely important to the way that readers respond. So she invests the novel with meaning that comes not from the intellect, but sens- sensory emotions. Another way is when an actual painting that she knew and loved and that she would often visit, perhaps at the National Gallery, is included in the painting as, a, as another character. So a character will often go to the National Gallery where there are four or five of the paintings that she actually describes in the novels and they become part of the philosophical um, mechanism of the novel. The most famous example here is Dora in the Bell, who walks into the National Gallery, looks at Gainsborough's painting of his two daughters, and she is so moved and touched by that. She sinks to her knees and momentarily the ego is cracked and she sees something outside herself that has nothing whatsoever to do with her. And she is changed by that experience. Just one more example of that is uh, in Under the Net, mm-hmm. Franz Howe's Laughing Cavalier, again in the Wallace Collection. Jake Donahue goes in there uh, to think about things, to solve a knotty problem, and looks at the painting of the Laughing Cavalier with the swashbuckling feather in his hat. And this becomes a symbol for Murdoch, of Sartrean existentialist man who thinks he is monarch of all he surveys and he can make decisions based purely on choice. This, of course, is the antithesis of her. Uh, moral philosophy where Jake is muddled, silly, and believes they're going to make even more mistakes and thinking everything incorrectly about everything he sees. So for Murdoch, morality is a matter not of choice, as depicted by the Love in Cavalier, uh, but one of vision. So all this is going on, uh, and I don't think it affects the meaning of the novel or the enjoyment or pleasure of the novel if the reader has no knowledge of, of the background to the page. Um,
0: this is all about level, levels in the novel, isn't it? It's all about yes, how the, you know, the perception, yeah.
3: yeah. Absolutely. Only one more example. Um, I, mean, I really could... <laughs> the complexity and the extent of all these it was so difficult to choose just I thought I would just do three examples um I could have done there there are 15 novels um and paintings I've just discussed in the book um the other one I think that's fascinating is to do with um the paintings often I noticed um have um depictions of warriors or soldiers now I actually met iris in a bookshop in clapham just as i was finishing my phd and i said to her i've just realized there's a whole group of paintings with warriors and soldiers in them do you think it's worth me inserting another chapter in (laughs) in my PhD?" and she said "Um, um yes my dear i think possibly that might be a good idea um so these these figures are extraordinary they're all to do with her ideas of courage." And I think particularly towards the end of her career, where she uses the Polish Rider by Rembrandt in The Green Light, she starts to get rather nervous about this idea of the annihilation of the self and how you equate that with ideas of uh, heroism
0: and courage. And all all these all these examples that you've been giving us, I mean, it's, you know, a, a rich heritage throughout her um throughout her fictional career it, it's also um related to the philosophy as well isn't it you know this, this idea ma- um, you know man makes images of himself and then comes to resemble those images that she's playing with these ideas throughout isn't she
3: absolutely i mean they serve in this du- dual function you mm. can you if if you have um a philosopher reading the book they can read these images purely through those philosophical ideas if you have a reader who's picked up the booker prize winner and is just reading for pleasure it, it they, they operate on a, another level uh, of of just simply engaging through the feelings, through the emotions and try and understanding. I think it's quite easy for a, a general reader to understand what's going through Harriet's yeah. mind, as well as understanding the, the, the platonic layers of consciousness, the, the low eros and the high eros,
0: the yeah, so battling
3: like... of, of Harriet's mind at that point.
0: Yes, because no. they're, all, they're, they're, all, they're all conversations, aren't they? And, and this, this idea of the conversation between the author and the reader, the conversation between the, the author and the painting, but it, um, is, is vital to, um, vital to her, um, her, her fictional creation, I suppose. Um, Rebecca, there was also this, this idea of the conversation that she's having throughout her life with other people, and particularly with artists. Uh, could you um, perhaps talk, talk a little bit about that in relation to um, Harry Weinberger?
2: Harry Weinberger was just one of the many artists that Iris Murdoch um, was friends with in her life. Um, And um, I think that although she did have these many friendships, this one was absolutely unique. They uh, shared a common identity. Murdoch and Weinberger seemed to construct reality in the same way and and to try and attend to and depict reality in a a very like-minded way. Um, they were really were kindred spirits. So to me, uh, when I went to read the letters from Murdoch to Weinberger, which came into the Kingston University archives in uh, 2012, um, over 400 letters were gifted to the archives by Weinberger's daughter. And I went to read them and I realised that this was something very important and, and very unusual. Murdoch and Weinberger had over 20 years of close friendship and intellectual discourse. And this... Uh, this dialogue lasted from 1976 uh, right up until the late 1990s and it was centred on art. The whole friendship was really um, centred around sustained discussion of the practice of art, the teaching of art, the morality of art and Murdoch actually sought Weinberger out as as a tutor um, and wanted to learn from him. He was a as well as being a practising art, artist, he was also a lecturer at Lanchester Polytechnic, which is now Coventry University. The letters from Murdoch to Weinberger, which were given to the Kingston University archives by Weinberger's daughter in 2012. There were over 400 letters from Iris Murdoch to, to Harry Weinberger. And when I went to read them, I realised that here was something very important. I just read uh, quite recently Anne's book the visual arts and the novels of Iris Murdoch. And so I was already very interested in how Murdoch was incorporating aspects of the visual arts into her writing. Uh, And when I read these letters and realised that they were absolutely saturated with comments on art and artists, I felt that they really needed more detailed scrutiny. Their friendship lasted over 20 years, from 1976 until Murdoch's uh, death. And The the whole dialogue was centred around sustained discussion of the practice of art, the teaching of art, the morality of art. Weinberger, as well as being a a practicing artist in his own right, was also an art teacher. He taught at Lanchester Polytechnic, which is now uh, part of Coventry University. And when they met by chance in Provence on holiday in 1976, actually at the house of Stephen and Natasha Spender, uh, Murdoch then pursued him when when they came back to England. She contacted him and asked to visit him at his Leamington home. She came to his workroom, she wanted to buy paintings, and he was a little um, reticent at the beginning of the friendship. It took a little time to to get off the ground. He said uh, in an interview of 1995, he said, oh, I thought she was patronising me. Uh, He told her the paintings weren't for sale. But she was um, very determined, really, to try and maintain and develop their friendship. I think she recognised something in him. She recognised that this was a a real kindred spirit and someone she could learn from and um, try and develop her thoughts on why she was drawn to certain paintings and to um, try and understand her reactions to them. They spent a lot of time visiting art galleries and museums. They met in London and uh, she wanted him to teach her. She really wanted him to give her his expertise. She recognized that he was a very intelligent and knowledgeable individual. Um, and he helped her to interrogate and expand her views on art. So they were often visiting the National Gallery, the Portrait Gallery, the Courtauld, um, and discussing the paintings and then following up their discussions in the letters. And there were lots of tantalizing references in the letters to conversations that they must have had in much more depth in person. In return for the uh, expertise that he shared with her, she was his staunch supporter. She really did admire his paintings. She bought a lot of his paintings. She spent a lot of her 1978 Booker Prize winnings on his paintings. And she really um, admired his style. She wanted to try and understand how he did it, and particularly what he was doing with color, because he was a colorist, really. It was color that, that mattered to him. And he kept going back to the same subjects in his painting as well. Uh, There are certain images that recur, the boat on water, for example, um, certain images from his vast icon collection such as masks and religious iconography. And these images also are to be found in Murdoch's novels. And I feel that there are not only shared values and shared methods but also a kind of imagistic dialogue taking place in their art and that analysing this will hopefully open up new ways of understanding Murdoch's creativity and new ways of understanding what she was doing with the visual arts.
0: Yeah because the, the late novels are you know in, in some regards even even more so than the early ones, are, are meditations upon art and um, mm. the creation of art and also as Anne was mentioning earlier the actual the use of the art of the um, of particular imagery um, has, has been influenced by her discussions with Weinberger and, you know, the, the images that they both saw together?
2: I'm sure, yes. I think it works in various ways. On one hand, there are the images that they viewed in galleries together um, and the discussions of these great paintings Um that then find their way into the novels, I think that at times his, his views may have influenced her. But actually, as, as well as that, what I've really um, begun to look at in more depth, I think, is the way that his images are also hers. And sometimes his paintings seem to hover behind her writing so that, for example, in the descriptions of the seascapes in The Good Apprentice, Um, They seem to mirror his paintings. He compulsively painted uh, the sea and rivers and boats in all weathers and all moods. And I think that in one particular image, uh, which which, which appears to Edward Boltram and which works its way into his consciousness and becomes a kind of icon of goodness for him, I think that she had Weinberger's paintings very much in her mind as she described that scene, which is um, a a beautiful um, scene of the the blue sea full of boats. I'm sure that there's a Weinberger painting behind that image.
3: It's an interesting point as well you make, uh, Rebecca, about this relationship. Um, It was intellectually hugely close. I don't think there was ever any romantic uh, relationship at all between them. It was never clouded by uh, any kind of emotional um, impetus and it's that wonderful clarity and the letters are very very focused on the ideas of art and that's why I think they're so valuable uh to this
0: uh yes yeah, there's there's no hint of diffused eroticism as there no. were in in her earlier life to no. an, uh, earlier letters yeah. to, to other people and of course yes. it's it's we're not just thinking about um the art and the artworks within the novels and how, and, and the influence upon them of her her own life um, which of course is, is essential, but it's, it's also how Murdoch's um, thought, her, um, her her intellectual engagement with these ideas, and it flows through into her philosophy. And, and Lucy, you've been um, writing over the last few years about how her her, her her intellect and her and her philosophy can be used beyond beyond her own work to interrogate mm-hmm. and explore film and cinema, and her thoughts about that.
1: Yes, um, I have, and I thought I'd just say a little bit about how that came about really because it is clearly quite a departure from a lot of the um scholarship that there is on 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 murdoch and also a lot of people have always said to me oh you 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 have to understand her philosophy you have to read the novels and i i wanted to see if it was possible um to use her philosophical thinking in relation you know on its own uh, merit in relation to a different body of work and see how that um Uh, came together but I mean my my first engagement with Iris I was well I was brought up by an Iris Murdoch fan my mum's a a, a fan of the novels and I read several of those novels as a schoolgirl and a student Um, the unicorn which I think probably remains my favorite and see the sea the bell uh, under the net and then moved on to the sovereignty of good um, when I was a student of theology and philosophy at Nottingham, um, and also the Sarch Romantic Rationalist. And I I left those studies behind, went into the law, then went into film, um, and then came back to philosophy through this burgeoning field of film scholarship on film and philosophy. And my PhD was on... Um, Irigaray, the philosopher Luce Irigaray, and the sort of way of imagining female consciousness on screen uh, within this field of film philosophy. And then when I was planning my second monograph, I, I knew I wanted to work on ethics and morality and goodness in film, and Iris was quite clearly the perfect place to start. The Sovereignty of Good was the perfect place to start with those investigations. But I re-read Sovereignty of Good and read all the philosophical works, read Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals and Existentialists and Mystics. And I realized how central um, looking, attention um, and unselfing is to Murdoch's philosophy. And as Anne was saying, how central art is to her thinking. And then I found the cinema essay that I think I'm going to be allowed to read from later. I found the cinema essay in Vogue, um, British Vogue 1956, where she considers film to be art. Uh, I didn't actually need her to consider it to be art. I was going to argue that she would consider it that way anyway, but this, but finding this was obviously a huge uh, insight and from that essay and from her philosophical essays I was able to develop a sort of increasingly rich and the more I read of her the more um, potential there was for exploring the relationship with film I was able to develop a whole approach to film uh, a film philosophical approach from Iris's work And in my book, I look on it in several sections, film as art and cinema as a hall of reflection, which is where she, which is an an image that she conjures up um, as a place for for thinking. The idea of film as a moral fable, a moral fable that's genuinely instructive and useful rather than just a a sort of decorative story. Um, I go straight to the heart of her existentialist thinking and her critique of Sartre and how film features so many existential heroes and heroines and how we might use her thinking to understand those Uh, goodness love and goodness and what that looks like on screen then one of the most interesting essays I find in metaphysics as a guide to morals is her thinking about comedy and tragedy and that worked really well in relation to film because obviously the line between the two is so blurred and veers from one side to the other. And then I got into her feminism and questions of women's stories and what it might mean in relation to contemporary intersectional feminist thinking to think about the telling of particular women's stories rather than stories that are essentially um, female which is I think something she she wasn't keen on at all so I was able to draw out these um, uh, areas and avenues of thinking about film from her Work and not just um, in relation to the specific ideas of attention and gazing, but also what um, Hannah Marie Althoff has called, after um, Michelle Le Duff's work, um, Murdoch's philosophical imaginary, her, her art of imagining, which is so rich in the philosophical writing, so many visual examples drawing on colours, drawing on sounds drawing on women's stories from literature, from the Bible, and and so many images and, and pictures that her philosophical thinking, as well as her literature and her novels, is incredibly rich with not just the conjuring of images, but the use of those images to convey ideas. So there, in that way, I found her thinking to, to almost play out in my mind like, like cinema um, sequences and be able to see those in contemporary film. So it became an increasingly rich and um, sort of multifaceted relationship. Um, And I'm very interested to hear what Anne said about emotion and the importance of emotion in the novels, because I think the, the importance of emotion and art is something that's enabling me to think more about Murdoch as a film phenomenologist as well and about how our experience, which is what she writes about, but how our experience of film has certain elements to it that our experience of other artworks does not.
0: Interesting. Thinking about these ideas of emotion and, and and emotional responses, how for so many people, their only perhaps experience of Iris on on in outside of the novel would would have been the two thousand and one Richard Air film. Yes, yes. Which, which does is, although it's a perhaps a, a good film about Alzheimer's, is quite reductive about Iris.
1: Yes. As well, I know you
0: you you've talked about that in the past.
1: I've I've talked about it. I've written about it as well. And I wrote I wrote about it as essentially um. Uh, a film about a, a star, a star vehicle, and those stars being Judy Dench, Kate Winslet, Iris Murdoch, the star, the celebrity, and Alzheimer's disease is dominating all of them. So, in a, in a way, all of those elements became focused on Alzheimer's. So, the Kate Winslet young. Iris is just kind of seen as wild and um, uncontrollable and protean, and all these um, ideas that we know about her. The elderly Iris, played by Judi Dench, is completely dominated by her disintegrating faculties, um, and and then the Iris Murdoch in the film is. Dominated by, uh, you know, the famous uh, idea of Peter Conradis that she's uh, was either bonking or bonkers, that Mm. she's either either young and wild or old and uh, batty, and there are certain elements of the film that are, uh, for example, when she watches the Teletubbies or um, asks which side of the door she's supposed to walk, that are really profoundly um they create an image of her of her as she was in her later years that really has nothing to do with the middle period of her life and she was, was so productive and working and producing so much work But i think uh, but having watched it again fairly recently when we all watched it at a special screening um at, at the conference the it's actually uh, there's more information about her Work than I initially thought upon first viewing back when I saw the film when it was released. And I was, I felt in some ways less critical of it. But I do think, and there were people in the audience who said, Well, I learned so much about her from that film. And there were, so so it has had a, a contemporary sort of cultural value. But I do think that what it did for at least 10 years. Was make was make her the kind of poster girl for what it's like to have Alzheimer's, and obviously there are there are research centres and buildings devoted to in her name, devoted to the investigation of Alzheimer's. And and whilst that is wonderful in many ways, that her um, her life came to show the devastating consequences of the disease, it did also detract from her other. You know the richness of her life's work.
0: Yes, it perhaps limited and limiting in 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 a variety of ways. Then, yes, uh, that that film, and um, perhaps staying with this idea of the of this the cinema, perhaps you could um, read some of the the essay by by Murdoch that you talked about that was in Vogue in in '56. So quite early on in her in in her career, really.
1: Yes, very and early. I,
0: I think that's going to give us a really uh, a good indication of um, of how she. Um, not just perceived cinema, but also how perhaps how she was using imagery within her own work.
1: Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm going to read it all, if, if I may. It's less than a thousand words, but it's it's so rich. And it's I think it's a piece of work that not many people um, have read or have seen. It's readily available online. Uh, it was part of the Vogue centenary year. Um, they looked in 2016, they looked back on some of the, their favourite archive pieces from the magazine. And yes, Iris Murdoch wrote for the August 1956 issue of British... Vogue, and this is what she says. I was told at school that the cinema resembles the cave in the Republic of Plato, a dark hole into which one retires in order to escape from reality and be entertained by shadows. Perhaps for that reason, and feeling too that shadows have their place, I used to expect films to resemble dreams and was disappointed. I make the assumption that the art of the cinema is visual and that its task is to delight and enlarge the imagination by the creation of visual images. How should a film achieve this? I speak, of course, as an outsider with strong prejudices and no expertise. The film is, for better or worse, the medium which can most exactly reproduce the moment-to-moment vagaries of the human consciousness. It is, in fact, the most natural image for the consciousness, which Locke, for want of this example, likened to a Magic Lantern show. The film presents an animated visual picture, observed from a certain point of view and experienced in a non-reversible order. From a painting, we can stand back. With a novel, we can pause and ponder. But a film is as near to us as our own self-awareness and comes over us with the inevitability of time itself. One result of this is that the film can be the most profoundly boring and demoralising of all art forms. What can compare with the feeling of blunted dreariness with which one leaves a bad film, especially if one has been unwise enough to visit it in the afternoon? A good story will always benefit a film, though a weak one will not necessarily ruin it. The Magnificent Ambersons is admirable in spite of its story. But what makes Seven Samurai mythological in the memory is that in addition to its other merits, it is a great archetypal tale. Now what can the movie camera do which nothing else can do and what should it therefore busy itself doing? It can present to us human drama and feeling in the form of momentary awareness. A film should not attempt objectivity It should not be as if we were there ourselves. Why are most travel films so depressing? It should resemble not a vague, detached awareness of things going forward, but a tense, heightened awareness, such as we have in dreams or moments of emotional vision. After all, this is a form of art. Therefore, Objects in films ought never to look normal, since objects do not do this in ordinary life in our moments of most acute observation. A film should show us a strange and startling world, disintegrated and distorted, and full of dramatically significant objects. Compare the surrealist painter who attempts by curious juxtapositions to revive our jaded awareness of our surroundings. I am tempted to say that the cinema is an art of indoors. Few outdoor shots linger in my memory except as reminders of other landscapes. And perhaps the most totally depressing, as well as one of the most common types of cinema-going experience, is to be presented with a sunny field of waving corn to the accompaniment of mediocre music. There is, however, one natural object with which the cinema is supremely concerned, and that is the human body. And more especially, that most interesting surface, the human face. Here we can find tragedy and comedy made minutely concrete in the movement of a muscle, and human character on display at the point where spirit and matter are most intensely fused. If cinema could do nothing but present faces, it would have enough material to be a major art. It follows from all this that I admire Cocteau and Orson Welles, that frankly dreamlike quality of the former, the everyday grotesque quality of the latter. The conversations in the dark house in the magnificent Ambersons, for instance, overwhelmingly create an image of despair, which is at the same time a delight to remember. A piece of intensified consciousness transformed into the material of art. These scenes also illustrate a careful combining of vision and sound. I do not go so far as to lament the disappearance of the silent film, but how often the addition of sound merely makes for facile storytelling and how rarely it is treated seriously as an aspect of the image. Such a grotesque intensity of presentation need not, of course, be alarming. It can also be funny, as we see from the films of Chaplin, and from The Italian Straw Hat, which is perhaps the funniest film ever made. It follows too that I like emotion minutely expressed. What a commentary on the dramas of love would be possible here. Yet films too rarely deal with love. The love scene in which tensions, ambiguities, calculations and hopes appear in minute signs. This is not often to be found. Examples that occur to me are the touching scene in the café in Brief Encounter, where the doctor begs the girl to see him again, and the scene in the conservatory in Le Jus Se I don't think there are many others. Add to this the screen tendency to prefer vacuous regular faces to irregular and interesting ones. For a serious treatment of the face, we turn to Japan – where perhaps the cinema is aided by a dramatic tradition which interested itself in facial expression. Even in the surely not impossibly difficult task of presenting the magic of feminine beauty, the cinema has not often succeeded. And for all their undeniable charms, I would exchange the whole pack of Italian gamins for the memory of Lee Miller in La Sang d'un Poète. That's the end. Thank
0: you for letting me read all that. That was amazing, thank you. Um,
1: there are so many, for, for a film philosopher such as myself, uh, there are so many wonderful parts of, of, of this essay. Um, first of all is the idea that she acknowledges that the the aim of cinema is to delight and enlarge the imagination and that it's a visual art, but that she also pays attention to the specifically filmic elements of sound and of movement um, and of a pace and time. So she, she you know, it, before and be- before she must have been reading film criticism because she does differentiate herself and say she's not an expert but she is quite clearly attuned to and aware of the specific elements of film that make it so such a fascinatingly human um art form um and she talks about archetypes and this idea that cinema can be mythological and also that it's a strange and startling world that always makes me think of things like the, the, the huge mad finger in Dial M for Murder dialing <laughs> dialing the M on the on the on the telephone or the telephone or the martini glass in Dial M for Murder the idea that in these heightened tense couple of hours of a film objects can take on an extremely heightened uh, meaning and I think that she really appreciates that as well and the the films that she chooses to talk about are almost like they're canonical before the film canon was, was invented. You know, she's picking out Cocteau and Awesome Wells and Brief Encounter uh, and she's differentiating between drama and comedy. And I think perhaps one of the most interesting parts for me about this is that as a novelist, she is not talking about um, adaptations and good stories she she says the good story yeah can help a film but it, not having one doesn't matter you she, know she's not she's not saying film is a the same sort of storytelling art as a novel not at all she's saying it has specific properties and specific abilities and and that is really really fascinating
0: it it, it certainly is and that um that central piece about um, the, the presentation of faces on film yes yeah I mean, it, it, essential not just to film, but to her to her fiction as well. And and listening to that, I'm sure you've got some thoughts as well.
3: Well, I I've, I've long been fascinated with Lucy's work because I think before I met Lucy and understood the nature of her uh, research, um, if someone had asked me if Iris knew a lot about film or if she watched a lot of films, um, I would have probably said, "Well, I I don't think so." Yeah. so I think it's an draw. <laughs> It's an extraordinary revelation to me, um, and I find it incredibly uh, fascinating. Um, and, and it says something about her mind. I mean, she, yes. she had an encyclopedic mind. It must have been like uh, the most contemporary computer inside her head, how she can carry that amount of detail and information and sustain it in such a sophisticated argument. It's an extraordinary uh, surprise and revelation to me, and I'm fascinated by it.
1: It also conveys to me, and I, I love it, similar to, I'm sure you're familiar with the Virginia Woolf piece on the cinema from the 20s when she came out of watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I, I love to picture her rushing back home to pick up her her notepad and to try and write what it was specifically about that film, that about film that music and the novel couldn't do. And then, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, um Iris is doing the same. Mm-hmm. It reveals an open-mindedness, yes. which I think is yes. something we'd all, you know, say characterized. Iris, She's so open-minded to receiving and reflecting upon this these experiences and thinking. It, it, it's an un, she she epitomizes an unselfing um, re- relationship to film because she's looking at it, thinking, what does it do? What can it do? Mm-hmm. What does it show? Uh, uh, what's it, what's special about it she's trying to do justice to it and to work out exactly what um, and I think the idea you know many people many philosophers have written about the close-up or what the face can do in um, both in ethics or, or on, on film in particular in, in the close-up but I was here my, by talking about spirit and matter intensely fused, she captures the idea that in a mobile face, shot of a face on film, you know, unless it's a still, there is always some movement in a face, even if it's an extreme close-up, that we are aware at that time of not just what the person looks like and their role or their part in the, in the film, but what they're thinking um, or what might be going through their heads Uh, And what they might be feeling, hoping for. So she actually captures how the image of a face on screen can convey a world of information that we can share if we're open to it like she was.
3: I think that relates to what, you know, when she's using painting, she says that what she wants to capture Uh, by including the paintings and indicating these various levels of consciousness um, is a complete and powerful picture of the soul.
0: These ideas regarding um, art and film it's clear that I think that she puts you know she she differentiates doesn't she in in her work between good art and bad art and fantasy and and, um, you know and the the best art yeah and um, she from what we've been discussing is she puts great film on on that level as well she can she said it's just as important and relevant as as fine art
1: yes and that is that is very important because um in uh you know traditionally film has been seen for all kinds of reasons as as very populist art mass entertainment uh, particular genres such as horror or um, some sort of body genre comedies and things like that and have been seen as particularly low art but what Murdoch does in her essay is to unequivocally say this is a form of art and it's special and so what can it do and what can we take from it and
0: yes of course and this and ex- um, this ex- the, the notion of the experience the 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 act in in some regards, the act of travel to a particular place, yes. experience a particular um, set of images, a set, set of, and also to be uh, emotionally moved as well, it, it comes through the novels. And yes. I know, um, Anne, you've chosen a particular scene from *The Nice and the Good* that kind of illustrates this in the National Gallery.
3: Yes, yes. Um, just going back to what Lucy was uh, saying about, about good art and bad art and the differentiation when she brings paintings into the novels there is a certain group of painters whom she loved Rembrandt Tintoretto um, and Giorgione and Bronzino that I'm going to talk about um they illustrate great art where the painter is able to crack the ego and see the world as it is uh, she said Cezanne said I do not see I do not paint the world I see it you know so um that's that kind can- Balanced by a group of painted fictional painters, like Jessie Baltram in The Good Apprentice, who Tim read in Nuns and shoulders. These fictional painters seem to represent not very good art by comparison with these great painters. Most of the paintings that she deals with were 16th, 17th century painters, the paintings um, painted in those centuries. I'm not sure if she felt that um, people, well, Harry labour of course, had moved on. Uh, so, yes, The Nice and the Good. Um, the painting that appears in The Nice and the Good is the Bronzino, an allegory of Venus, Cupid, Folly and Time. And I'd like to get just a little uh, other way that the no- the paintings uh, bring in novels come in through the back door when I talk about this one. Because John Bailey said in his memoir of Iris, sometimes a painting would set her off. Uh, often when she'd finished one book and she was starting another and she couldn't quite get a handle on what she wanted to talk about, they would tour art galleries and she would look for inspiration there. And I honestly think that The Nice and the Good um is inspired by Bronzino's painting. Up until about a year ago, it was in room six of the National Gallery. Um, it probably is still there uh, and they used to visit there. It actually appears twice in the novel. Uh, when Paula Barani goes into the National Gallery and sits and looks at this painting, and there's a quite a, a long description of this painting in *The Nice and the Good*. Um, it informs the entire thematic structure of the book, um, and it's billed as the most frankly erotic painting in the collection. Now, if anybody listening to this, <coughs> pardon me, has got um, a mobile phone with them. I suggest you quickly Google and have a look at it. It's a stunning painting. It's huge. And nobody who walks past this in room six of the National Gallery would not stop. It's arresting. It's an amazing painting. Um, Build, as I say, the most frankly erotic painting in the collection. Um, Time and truth are removing a curtain to reveal Venus and Cupid, who are in fact mother and son, frozen in a deeply erotic moment before sexual consummation. Now, the the figure of time at the top looks deeply worried. Time knows that no good is going to come of this, and time knows that there will be terrible repercussions from this action. Truth is looking shocked and uh, pained, and around them there are three other characters. There's Folly, with an anklet of bells, heedless of a thorn, Uh, In her foot and showering lovers with rose and petals, egging them on, so to speak. Um, Crouching behind Folly is Deceit. She's got an incredibly beautiful face, but a foul body. And then to the left of the painting is the figure of Janice Jealousy. She's just plain ugly, um, demented, raging, uh, anguished, and she looks rather a demonic figure. Now, Um, I would argue that the the painting infiltrates the novels in two ways. The whole plot of the painting um, echoes this because there are about nine incidents in the book where two characters reach that point of erotic consummation where they are just about to lose control uh, and make love, have sex. Uh, And. Each time she picks apart the psychological acuity behind that action, sometimes people go ahead and do it, sometimes they don't. So she's using it. Um, it was written in 1968 at the peak of the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And she's asking the question, how far can those moments be controlled? Um, how far do we just fall into them mindlessly? And how far is it wise for reason and rationality uh, to intrude? Um there's a comparison with the painting here as well because Bronzina painted this in about 1645 when a wave of syphilis was sweeping through uh, Europe so you can see the links there
0: of course and also um, questions about obsession and obsession about artwork and especially about artwork that has a a strong spiritual resonance with um, the outsider or with um, deracination and Rebecca you're going to talk a little bit about um, iconography in Murdoch's work aren't you
2: Uh, Yes, I'd like to talk about the icon in the Time of the Angels, um, partly because it's it's an interesting example, I think, of how Harry Weinberger's thoughts on on this icon and a piece that he wrote about it in 1974 um, actually changed the way that we interpret what Murdoch is doing with the icon in the novel. So the Time of the Angels, which was written in 1966, depicts a time of fragmented spirituality. And... In this, it reflects the concerns in Murdoch's philosophy about contemporary changes in theological thinking, whether religion can be reconnected with ethics. And Carol Fisher, the Anglican priest who has lost his faith, um, personifies ideas and theories about God which are flooding in to fill the vacuum in human consciousness caused by loss of religious certainties as innumerable angels turned loose in a chaotic universe At the heart of this very dark, very disturbing novel, which seemingly to transcend its emotion and its action, is the icon. The icon depicts three angels. The icon passes through the hands of various characters, and each character imposes the shape of his or her own imagination on it, and can therefore only achieve a distorted, incomplete vision of it. And we, as readers, are encouraged to assess their different perspectives. And the part of the novel I wanted to focus on particularly is when it comes into the hands of the demonic Carole Fisher, it's brought back to the rectory by his brother, Marcus. And this is the point where the icon is described in most detail. Under the direct light of the lamp, beside the insipid pallor of the flowers, the solid wooden rectangle glowed golden and blue. The three bronzed angels, weary with humility and failure, Sat in their conclave, holding their slender rods of office, graceful and remote, bowing their small heads to each other under their huge, creamy halos, floating upon their thrones in an empyrean of milky brightness. Now, this icon is identifiable as Andrei Rublev's Old Testament Trinity, which was painted in approximately 1410. Murdoch kept a reproduction of the Rublev Trinity by her desk in Charlbury Road. She was evidently still thinking about it long after the writing of the time of the angels. Murdoch's great friend, the painter Harry Weinberger, was an expert on religious iconography. He knew this uh, particular icon very well. He visited it at the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow in the mid-70s whilst on a goldsmith's traveling fellowship, and he wrote about it. His commentary on the Trinity casts new lights on Murdoch's meditations on this image in the time of the angels, and it guides critical attention towards another work of art, which seems to be present behind Rublev's Trinity. So this is what Weinberger wrote about it. This Old Testament Trinity exudes a strange stillness and silence. There is no sense of action. The most striking quality clearly expressed is a profound spirituality and tender humanity. The angels seem utterly self-absorbed and the composition is of a completeness which makes for perfect harmony. The painting is designed on a grand scale. There are no unnecessary details which could detract from the overall impact. In some ways, the mood of this icon reminds one of Piero della Francesca's Baptism of Christ in the National Gallery in London. And it seems to me there are at least two ways in which Weinberger's commentary can give us fresh insights into Murdoch's working of Rublev's Trinity into the time of the angels. Firstly, Weinberger's description of the angels as utterly self absorbed and his emphasis on the completeness of the circular composition of the Trinity imply that, united and self sufficient in their absolute perfection, the angels are at risk of becoming increasingly distant from and no longer accessible by imperfect earthly reality. Perhaps the angels have turned in on themselves because they are no longer receiving sufficient attention from the modern world. The apparent remoteness of Rublev's angels visually embodies Murdoch's fear that religious iconography might no longer perform its mediating function, but crystallize into a barrier. So there seems to be a Chinese box of trinities opening up behind the image of the icon in the time of the angels. And each of these trinities seems to be functioning as an an image of good, which combats the trinities of evil, which are constructed by Carroll in his um, his warped theology. At at a time when the concept of the angel had become impoverished, I think what Murdoch is doing is is invoking these great um, artworks in order to try and reimagine angels.
0: So thinking about what we've um, been discussing today, could each of you give a recommendation to um, our listeners of, if, if they're interested in getting to know Murdoch's thoughts, where would be the best place to start? Lucy, do you want to... to... Uh, yeah.
1: Well, I'm torn between the best place to start, I think, um, would be sovereignty of good in relation to her thinking about um, unselfing and goodness. But I recommend getting stuck into metaphysics as a guide to morals and um, just enjoying it, making your way through this complete like maelstrom of ideas and of thoughts and of images and just losing yourself in it. Um, I just think it's the most wonderful read so i recommend that
0: it's a tricky place to start okay okay
1: <laughs> so i'll say something of good to start and if you want yeah. like to start with a novel i'd say under the net um but if you want to really lose yourself in her um in her thinking and her ideas and be inspired then i go back again and again to metaphysics as a guide to me. It,
0: it, it is so rich isn't it and yeah. um I'm sure there'll be a podcast on it at some point. Of course there is there has been a podcast on Sovereignty of Goods, so if you yeah. if you don't know that one then do do go and have a listen to the podcast first. Rebecca, where would you start?
2: Um well um I actually I would suggest perhaps going to look at the portrait of Murdoch in, in the National Portrait Gallery, um the, the Tom Phillips portrait, if it was on show. Um although this is perhaps not quite what you were after. But uh, I, I think it, it's fascinating for understanding how Murdoch was contributing to the process of uh, her mythologisation. She was certainly very um, concerned about the way she was uh, visually represented. Um, And she had some input into the Tom Phillips portrait, which was created in the mid-1980s. And it's fascinating for how Phillips has has contributed to her canonisation by the props that he uses, the way he includes the playing of Marcius. She actually named the four sketches that accompany the portrait. She named them earth, air, fire, and water, um, and made that mythological link, I think, to ancient Greek culture. And um, she certainly loved this portrait. She loved the way that he had represented her. She loved the fact that it was turned into a postcard and that this became the image that perhaps is most well-known of her. And um, so I certainly think that would be a good starting point for anyone who's interested in Murdoch and the, the moving image.
0: <laughs> I think that's a really good point, actually. And um, we'll put a link into um, the podcast so people can, can look at it online. It's probably the, the easiest way, certainly in the present time. Anne, how about you?
3: Well, having talked about The Nice and the Good uh, and The Bronzino in the National Gallery, which I think would be a really good place to start if anybody's really interested in how she builds the visual arts into the novels, uh, I'd also suggest uh, going back and having another look at the sea, the sea. And when Charles Arrowby goes into the Wallace collection and looks at Titian's Perseus and Andromeda and having a really, really good look at that painting, go back to the novel, look at all the way the imagery from the painting seeps into the novel and see if you can work out what she's doing there. Um, Part of what she's doing, of course, is trying to expand the use of language Um, to to be able to portray the inner life of characters more explicitly. So that would be one good exercise to really get into the mechanics of what she's doing. And alongside that, um, in existentialists and mystics, there is an essay entitled Thinking and Language. Mm. Um, She says that when we think, we don't think in words, we think Mm. in images. So what she's trying to do when she wants to get into her character's thinking is create images for the reader to relate to, uh, rather than simply relying on blank words on the page. So that would be where I would suggest someone might want to start. And I don't think that is too difficult, that um, short essay. If I, and if I could
1: just revise my um somewhat ludicrous uh recommendation to start oh, with. <laughs> this is <a> guy tomorrow. <laughs> following on with what you say there and i would suggest in Existentialism and mystics the essay vision and choice in morality, in morality um yes. where Have i believe you what you were just saying i think she talks about isn't she about the being the role of artists and poets to find new ways of saying things to shed light yes. on aspects of language that are, are um, cannot be covered by language yeah, the inadequacies yes. of language yeah. so i think vision and choice the is example, a great place to start the
3: example i think that she uses there is henry james's his image yes. of the pagoda the
1: pagoda um, yeah yeah, yes, exactly. and she also um, talks about um, the woman with the alabaster vase in the Bible, and yeah. she talks about private yeah. movie show a la Walter Watermitty. So yes, it's full of uh, moving image ideas in vision and choice.
0: Well, thank you all. I think that's uh, you've left people with a lot of homework um, <laughs> and a lot of books to be looking at over the over the next um, couple of weeks before the next podcast. Um, so my thanks to my guests, um, to Lucy Bolton, to Anne Rowe, and to Rebecca M- uh, Moden. The next podcast will be coming up in a couple of weeks then.